Well, as most of you know, this past year has forced me to really look at every aspect of my life and shake things up a little bit, which is strange because if you had asked me, I was pretty sure I was living my best life already. Thank you very much. But it turns out that the status quo rarely lends itself to growth and flourishing in our lives. <clears throat> when things get hard or busy or we have some sustained amount of stress in our lives for some reason, we tend to rely on things that have served us well at one point in our lives, but maybe no longer do. And then we find ourselves holding on for dear life through these experiences, through sheer will and determination, we think we're going to just make it through, <clears throat> which as many of you all know, is exhausting. The unexamined life is not worth living, Socrates said, and I guess he didn't mean just a cursory look now and then at some New Year's resolutions. Self-examination takes some deep, deep work, and it's not easy. So it usually takes something from the outside to sort of knock us and get us moving. I actually recently heard someone lamenting how much Aspen has changed. That seems to be a theme a lot lately. But this particular person said, you know, it's just not the same place as when I moved here in 1964. <laughs> and I thought, dude, nothing's the same. It's been 60 years. There's going to be some changes. There's going to be some growth, let's hope. But I think sometimes we can get so stuck rigidly in the past that we don't even want to know what di a different life might look like. We don't want to know or be part of the design of something different. Fear of change and fear of the unknown are so powerful, aren't they? Well, I'd suggest to us this morning that Jesus didn't want us to settle for the status quo. Jesus thinks that we should be challenging it, in fact, taking it apart, examining the status quo for cracks or new fissures. Maybe upon further investigation, the status quo holds. But often it doesn't. Often it's left wanting. This I know for sure, though, when we refuse to examine our faith because we're scared of what we might find, that's no way to live. As I said, holding on to fear, uh, holding on to the old for dear life is exhausting. It leads to burnout and sometimes even walking away from our religious traditions or sometimes our faith altogether because we're craving something better when what we really want is something more out of the faith we already have. Well, a few years ago, my kids gave me this very funny and uh, irreverent coffee mug, which, um, as you will see, has a picture of Jesus on the front there. And then it says, OMG, you guys, that's not what I meant. <laughs> well, it is an irreverent little mug, as I said, uh, but it reminds me to not take everything that I hear or read at face value. It reminds me to look at the words of scripture and interpret and think about them and what they mean to me today. What, I, what, what is God speaking to me today? How does this scripture 
or this interpretation that I might be reading draw me closer to God. Because if reading scripture, by the way, draws you away from God, then I've got news for you. OMG, you guys, that's not what it means. It should draw you in. It should draw you closer to the divine. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, I know, so let me be very clear. I firmly believe that we should take God and God's word seriously. Maybe just not always literally. And if that scares you, I understand. So just stay with me for a minute. I'm here for you. Stay with me. Today I want us to look at a few places in scripture where Jesus means what he says, but he may not be saying what we think he means. Is that convoluted enough for you? Jesus means what he says, but it may not be what we think he's saying. So challenging what we think we know or what we've been told we should believe or my favorite, what we've been, ta we've been taught, it's just the way we do things around here. Challenging those things is healthy. Examining our faith is never a bad thing. Some of you might remember from the Gospel of Matthew this line, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's tough news to hear around these parts, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, really? Is being rich a sin? Is having money going to prevent someone from experiencing God's glory? And if so, well then, how much is too much money? What's the difference between rich and poor? Because I want to make sure that I'm right there. I don't want to cross that line. You see how we begin to question things in a way that with, about, because we want clarity and we want certainty all of a sudden when we interpret something at face value like that? Well, Jesus also said, don't store up riches for yourself. Is he telling us never to open a savings account? Is he telling us that uh, we should never own our own home or plan for the future? Of course not. One of my favorite words growing up was one I learned in English, English class, hyperbole. Such a funny word. I, I, that's why I liked it. I think it's just a funny sounding word, hyperbole. Well, Jesus is employing the use of hyperbole in these examples to teach us a message. And the message is this. Don't let money and material things enslave you. Don't turn money into your idol. Don't place the love of money above everything else. Don't be lured by your riches away from the things that God really wants for us. Things like kindness, gentleness, goodness, charity, and love. That's the message that Jesus is trying to present here. And sometimes things taken at face value prevent us and distort uh, something to the point where we can't hear the good news, the gospel. Several years ago, a man by the name of Aldo Bianchini, a 46-year-old man, was sitting at mass in an Italian church when he began gouging his own eyes out. Now, we know that the man was mentally unfit, of course. But he was also fulfilling the words that Jesus said in Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. 
Clearly, Jesus didn't mean for us to take these words literally, gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands. Jesus is saying here there are very serious things that can cut us off from God. Not God from us, by the way. God has promised us that nothing can separate God from us. But we do things through our own behaviors, through our own actions that cause us to separate from God. In all of the examples I just mentioned, Jesus is saying here, there are things we do, attitudes even that we hold, that can lead to our own internal suffering. And they bring harm to ourselves, to our relationships, to the world around us if we're not careful. Jesus is very serious. This is a very seriously worded passage, but it is hyperbole. The words themselves are, of course, not to be taken literally. I once counseled someone who was going through a divorce, and they were very concerned that this was a sin against God, that in divorcing, they were committing adultery, even though there was no uh, other woman, no other man, no extramarital affair. Jesus said in Matthew 19, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. Well, many people still take those words very literally. But I think it's wise to interpret the words of Jesus along with the deeds of Jesus. So you might remember the story of the woman at the well in the Gospel of John. Jesus comes to a well in the heat of the day where he sees a woman drawing water from the well, and he asks her for a drink of water. And then he proceeds to have the longest recorded dialogue with anyone in the whole of the New Testament. They talk about personal things, of course, but they also talk about theology, about proper worship. And most importantly, Jesus reveals himself to this woman, this foreigner from Samaria. He says to her, I am the Messiah that you've been looking for. Jesus makes this woman feel so seen and known. And here's the thing. This is a woman who had been divorced and married five times. But Jesus doesn't damn her. Instead of throwing her out of church and denying her a spot at the table, he offers her his living water. And then he sends her out to be a witness to the world on his behalf. His grace for this woman is astounding. It shows great concern for those who have been pushed to the margins, ousted and shunned. Jesus' grace is always inclusive. Another time when Jesus encountered a group of men intent on stoning a woman to death because of her adultery, they made their case to Jesus, citing the law of Moses, and certainly stoning was at the time culturally acceptable, which is, we find mind-boggling today. But when the men cite the law and then they ask Jesus what he would do because she had broken it, Jesus frankly kind of ignores them. He does this thing where he stoops down into the dirt and he just sort of starts doodling there. People have debated for 2,000 years what Jesus may have been writing in the sand. But as he stoops down, writing in the dirt, he says, 
to the men. If any of you are without sin, go ahead. Throw the first stone. Go ahead. He doesn't even look up when he says it, by the way. He just is down there examining that dirt as if to say, I don't need to know. I don't need to know who throws the first one. I don't need to know anything. I leave you to examine your own conscience. (coughs) And wouldn't you know it, one by one, they walk away. Finally, Jesus rises up. He turns to the woman and he looks around and says, did no one stay to condemn you? Then neither do I. Neither do I, Jesus says. Go and sin no more. There is such a gentleness in that response. And frankly, it was a gentleness for all of them. He didn't scold the men any more than he did the woman. Because guess what? We're all sinners. Sin takes us away from our true center. You may remember that the word sin means to miss the mark as in an archery term, to miss the mark. And so you all know this, that when we do something that we, we, we know we shouldn't be doing, it just doesn't feel right. Something in us doesn't feel right when we do it. We know it's not good for us. I don't care what it is, how big or how small it might be, we know it's not who we want to be. We are not at our best. Our best is when we are connected and making decisions from a place within us that is connected to the divine within us. But we can't hit that target all the time. None of us can. And so Jesus says to us, as gently as he can, you are not condemned. Now go and do better. That's grace. There are so many examples in scripture that are confusing and contradictory if we look at them without trying to discern the deeper, more fundamental lesson before us. Here are just a few more, because I think they're fascinating. The Apostle Paul said to women that they should all wear head coverings in church. And I'm looking around, and I think only two of us qualify this morning, so sorry, ladies. I don't know. I don't make the rules around here. Paul also said uh, that women were not allowed to preach. Oops. But then Paul also acquired an entire team of women who traveled with him, who preached, who led, who raised money, who governed the churches. Go figure. How about this one in Leviticus, when God forbids tattoos? A whole generation of people are in trouble if that still qualifies. And right before that passage in Leviticus, by the way, there's also this. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. That's an odd one. I had to look that up. You know what it means? Well, in ancient times, there was a tribe of Arabs who worshipped other gods, and it was their practice to shave their heads just above the ears and behind so that they had a little bowl cut. And so they were identified as these particular other God-worshipping tribe by the way they wore their hairstyle. So that was out. And beards were supposed to be uh, long and flowing, probably like women's hair also was their glory, and it was considered a disgrace to shave your beard. 
right? So if you were a follower of God, beards, yes. Bowl cuts, no. I kind of agree with the bowl cuts, actually. I'm glad we don't have those in style anymore. <laughs> in other places in the Old Testament, we read that charging interest on a loan is grounds for death. Ooh. So was working on the Sabbath, doing any kind of work on the Sabbath. Again, I'm just in big trouble if all of these laws still apply. But Jesus was too. Remember, they almost stoned him when he dared to heal on the Sabbath because that was working. So what's the bigger picture here? What are we talking about? What's going on with some of these outlandish sounding things or some of the things that are just disconnects, they seem, between Jesus' words and what he's saying and what Jesus is actually out there doing, modeling. In all of these examples, and frankly, throughout the entirety of Scripture from beginning to end, the Scriptures are trying to lead us into a life that is God-centered, period. Sometimes we just have to say things in a way that's going to get people's attention. They're absurd to us if we take them at face value. Anybody out there ever say that you're so hungry you could eat a horse? When I uh, had a toothache one time, it hurt so bad that I said, somebody just get me a hammer, I'm going to knock it out myself. That would have been ugly. <laughs> hyperbole. This is hyperbole. There will be people who will confidently proclaim without question, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You ever hear that? It's a cute phrase, but settles it for who? God says it, I believe it, that settles it, is a total conversation stopper. It's meant to say, don't even come at me with anything else. Like, just move along, people. I don't need to hear any more. I don't need any more dialogue about this because I have made up my mind because it says it right here in Scripture or because it's what my preacher told me. But can we, like Jesus, challenge that a little bit? Can we challenge the status quo? Can we dare hear interpretations other than the ones we've been brought up with? Can we come freely with our doubts and other ways of viewing some really long-held traditions without fear of retribution or worse of losing our way somehow? God is constantly speaking to us throughout the ages and we do our best to understand God's meaning and God's intent through a variety of ways. Study, prayer, community, being together. But we have to remain open to God expanding or even correcting sometimes our understanding, myself included. So can we enter into these sacred stories of our past and allow them to speak to us in a new way and can we listen and respect what God may be saying to others and how God may be speaking to them as well? You see, I think our, our, our faith here at Snowmass Chapel is strong enough to do that. I see this as a community of faith where I want us to be known as Christians who are passionate about God's word, absolutely, but who show up with the same kind of grace and inclusion that Jesus modeled for us day in and day out. So how? 
how exactly do we know we're getting it right? Because I know a lot of us want to just be right. We want to know we're getting it right. Am I doing the right thing? Am I getting this? Am I good enough? Oh my goodness, yes you are. We may not always be good, but we are always enough. As for how to deal with the inevitable need for certitude that we find ourselves with often, our desire to just know confidently that we are right, but we might have to just let go of that a little bit. Hold that, hold our convictions lightly, as my seminary professors used to say. Be okay with not knowing. Be okay holding the tension that we might be feeling without having to resolve something. And always, always, always be open to the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Listen, listen. Jesus made his way to the top of a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And there he encountered Moses and Elijah, long dead, greatest prophets of their time, arguably of ours as well. It is what is known as the transfiguration of Jesus. Because as soon as he came into contact with them, he shone dazzling white, dazzling white. And then a voice came from a cloud and said mysteriously to the disciples, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Part of our walking in faith is learning to listen. There are so many voices. So many voices today, just as there were then. There are preachers' voices, political voices, parents' voices, the voices in our culture, uh, the, the, the voices in scripture, which we've already heard many of this morning and understood that it can be far from easy to grasp sometimes. Then there are the voices in our heads, our own egos at play. There are the the voices that are sometimes chastising and critical. And there are the voices that are sometimes a little too grandiose, a little too self-important. Only you know for sure how much influence each of these plays in your own lives. But maybe the message that we are meant to hear today is that it is okay to re-examine old ways, challenging the status quo, is what Jesus wants us to do. It's what he did in order to help us better understand the intent of God's messages throughout time. That God's word is not meant to condemn us, but to offer us God's unfailing love. This is my beloved son, God said to the disciples, to us. Listen to him. Listen to what he's really saying. Dive a little deeper. Listen. Challenge. Listen again. Doubt. Listen again. Mystified. Listen. Wounded. Listen. Listen for God's message of unfailing love for every person on the planet. Because that we absolutely know he means.
So I invite you right now to just take a few moments of silence to do just that, to just listen.